You're listening to Startups for Good, where we explore high growth and high values ventures. I am your host, Miles Lasseter, three-time founder turned investor. Join us to hear stories of entrepreneurs. Join us to be inspired to be a founder or to work for a startup. Join us to be part of a community that believes startups can be a force for good. Welcome to Startups for Good. Hi, I'm your host, Miles Lassiter. In this episode, you'll hear a conversation that I had with Connie Macubella recorded in 2015. Since then, he has changed jobs. He's become managing director of Kindred Ventures, which is a $56 million fund one that invests at time T equals zero. They focus on formation and funding technology companies. TechCrunch calls him an exceedingly smart and sweet guy, which I think is accurate. I think you'll really enjoy listening to his thoughts before he made it to the big time. You may notice that some of the companies in this episode are older, but the principles are timeless. So maybe you know them, maybe you don't, but listen up to the other things he teaches us. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. Yeah, we're glad to have you on. Why don't we start with you telling us some about the Collaborative Fund? Gladly. The Collaborative Fund is an early stage fund, which looks to be the leading source of capital for our tagline is creative entrepreneurs who want to change the world. And what that means is we are investing at the intersection of for profit and for good. And it's our belief, our catalyzing thesis, so to speak, that when you actually intersect those two, you can have the greatest returns and the greatest impact over the long run because you're aligning interests. So you're saying that for-profit model allows for more scale and therefore that's where you get greater impact? Is, is that what you mean or something else? That's part of it, yes. We're saying that when you think of the Venn diagram, so to speak, between good for me and good for the world, the overlapping area is where there's explosive opportunity, broadly speaking, across across the spectrum. But you're starting to see that manifest more specifically with respect to the consumers today who are being values-driven and how they are consuming, what they're consuming, who they're choosing to work with as a, from a service provider standpoint, and what they actually want to do from the standpoint of where they spend their time. And so we actually think that there's a sort of consumer-driven trend in the zeitgeist, which demands more from companies and demands more from businesses than being profit-driven in a very narrow, short-term sense without thinking about ecosystems, without thinking about impact, without thinking about their holistic uh, contribution to society. Great. So you're an investor. It's a VC fund structured similar to other VC funds, I assume. And can you tell us more about the number of investments, size, those kinds of metrics? Gladly. So we are indeed a VC firm and we're structured very similarly to the traditional VC model, which for the uh, unfamiliar among your listeners, it's about a decade is the standard investment period uh, during which uh, there's a small period where you're deploying and then there's the rest of the period where you're sort of waiting for the capital that's been put into these companies to return through some version of an exit, be it an IPO, merger and acquisition, or other more creative forms of exit. And uh, we've got uh, about 50 investments actually uh, across software, hardware, CPG, uh, you name it, and have been around for about four years. Our investment check size 
uh, is between a quarter million dollars in the low end and a million dollars in the high end. So this and is the amount you're putting into each company. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And so we tend to be very early. So either that's first institutional round or series A or seed. And in some cases, even what I like to call a genesis round, where we just have really high conviction about a founder or about a category and want to back them before they've even launched. So you're writing checks very early in the process then. It sounds like even when it's just an idea. And so you've got to sow a lot of seeds as it's high risk at that point to make sure that some of them come to fruition, it sounds like. I mean, 50 Absolutely. deals, that's a lot of deals in four years. Absolutely. Yep. And uh, we turned four in November of 2010. So I guess it's we're in our fifth year now. But the general principle with early stage investing is you have to invest with the assumption that there's a power law distribution that the returns are going to follow, which means that most, the vast majority of the companies we invest in, we expect to not be massive home runs, even though we hope that any individual one of those companies will be, but just from a statistical standpoint. And so we have to make enough bets that we can find a couple of home runs in there. And we don't know going in a priori, so to speak, which of those are going to be the home runs. And so we have to make a number of bets. And every time we we invest in a company, which is a really interesting piece of this business, we have to hold this contradiction in mind, which is on the one hand, statistically, I know this company is going to fail. And on the other hand, Looking at this company, I have extremely high conviction that they're going to succeed. And we have to do that over and over and over again each time we make an investment. Because you don't want to let yourself off the hook and say, well, most of them are going to fail so I can take a few lower quality deals. Not only that, but in the event that we sort of start to let our guard down, we most of them will fail. And in fact, all of them will fail. So we have to hold ourselves to a really high standard just to have the opportunity to find a couple of those that actually go so far as to define culture. That's really interesting talking about that risk reward trade-off. I mean, is that something that's been new to your way of thinking as as you've come on board there, or is this something that you were comfortable with before? Well, as 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 a, a participant in the in the tech industry, it's it's a it's a concept that I'd been intellectually sort of familiar with, but hadn't had an emotional and or visceral experience of it quite so intensely as once I sort of got onto the venture side. So I, I spent uh, about six or seven years working for a couple of startups, uh, which exited. And so I had seen what it was like on the entrepreneur side to raise funding, to build a product, to serve a market, and to find a home for the company once it sort of had, had reached a certain scale. But I didn't realize the fact that the chips were stacked quite so much against me as they actually were. And if I had known that, maybe going back into it, I would have gone on a different path. There's a lot of people who say that. If you knew from the beginning how hard it would be, how much work, uh, and how long the odds were, would you even start out down the path? That's right. It, it takes it takes a, an element of, of either naivete or, or serious self-delusion to be willing to go down that path, which I really, really admire in everybody who does it. And I'm so glad entrepreneurs are willing to do that uh, so commonly uh, as it is. Otherwise, we wouldn't have all of the benefits. So you're a partner collaborative fund. Um, how do you get involved? Were you one of the founding team members? or I was I was not. So, so the founder of Collaborative Fund is a gentleman named Craig Shapiro. And Craig had been an entrepreneur himself uh, across, across uh, about a decade. He had been the 
mobile entrepreneur who brought the first GPS-enabled Google Map to a mobile device and did the first sort of mobile apps in a pre-iPhone world with carrier-based deals. And then he went on to become president at Good Magazine, uh, which is the media property whose tagline is, quote, for people who give a damn. And while there, he just got to see some extraordinary, I guess I'll call it deal flow, but in a magazine, it's just stuff worth covering that was in the nonprofit space, in the for-profit space, side projects, creative projects. And in doing that, he saw this opportunity to tell a story with capital around what he saw was happening in his community. And uh, the founders of Good, I had grown up with. And so I got connected to him through them. Oh, what? And can you tell us more about investments you've made while you're there? Are there certain ones you've spearheaded that you're, you're particularly proud of or you want to sure. mention for some other reason? Sure, sure. So so in most in most venture capital firms, especially the the later stage ones, but to some extent in the earlier ones too, it's usually a a partner is the the lead on a deal and so that partner will join the board, that partner will be the sort of primary advocate for the company to the rest of the partnership, but then also be the primary point of contact from the company to the firm itself. And we operate somewhat differently just in the fact that we're such a small team and we have such a small partnership. Uh, we are highly, highly, highly collaborative when it comes to how we get our deals done and how we support them in time. Uh, but a few that that uh, that we've done since since I've been since I've been sort of active and kicking. Uh, one is uh, one that we share called uh, Alt School, and and Max Ventilla uh, said I remember when when he first mentioned that he was working on something new. He said that it was not for the faint of heart because of how he was intending to structure the deal, but also just the scale of ambition for it. And as soon as he said that, I knew that whatever he was working on was something that I was going to fight for. And uh, when I actually ultimately heard the pitch, was so excited to, to ask him for an allocation and participate. Also funded a company in Los Angeles called InVenture, which is doing some very interesting work. Uh, InVenture is a software platform on the mobile device currently on Android uh, moving to iOS and actually to Symbian and feature phones where they are doing spot loans through M-Pesa and other mobile money. The idea being that there's an incredible rise of mobile money, particularly in, uh, in East Africa. And they're trying to use that to create a ramp for people to have revolving credit. And uh, they've had some sort of extraordinary success uh, in their early days, uh, basically doing what I'm calling the first ever mobile-only credit card. And really excited about that company. Uh, there's a company in San Francisco, which we funded about two years ago called Hampton Creek, which I also think is really exciting. Uh, Hampton Creek is another one of those sort of cases where the, the entrepreneur you could see was somebody who had a gravity well around them. It was clearly just such a force of nature. But what he had done was he used uh, molecular biology and protein chemistry to analyze what happens in an egg when an egg is used in processed food, and then recreate those conditions using uh, lima beans and soybeans and other sort of plant-based materials so that you can actually replace processed eggs throughout the processed egg industry. And so they've made a mayonnaise, a cookie dough, a cookie, and are going down the line making all these uh, sort of egg-based traditionally products without any of the eggs and they're doing wonderfully well as well so it's vegan eggs vegan eggs exactly it's, it's vegan it's vegan products i guess is the best way to put it but where i think they're super interesting and as a sort of a great manifestation of of why we think this strategy can be successful is that the ceo describes what i like what i really liked as a phrase which he says is a conspiracy for good and so their mayo tastes 
in a blind taste test, it performs as well as any other mayo you'll find on the shelves, vegan or not. Uh, from a cost standpoint, their supply chain has been optimized such that they can be cost competitive with any of the traditional manufacturing methods for getting a mayo to the shelves, and in some cases, cheaper. And they've also got wonderful branding. And so if I'm a consumer and I'm looking at their mayo versus the competitors, there's no compromise I have to make. In fact, I choose the one that has the best branding, that has the best price, that has the best taste. And what they've then done is created an environmental hit out of that, is created an economic efficiency out of that, is saved a bunch of male chicks and so forth. And so that's the type of conspiracy for good that I find just utterly irresistible. And it is that total package that is important uh, for these successful entrepreneurs, it sounds like. You're not talking about the sustainable businesses or businesses that create social good that somehow that lets them off the hook from uh, solving real consumer desires or lets them off the hook to having a financial return. They've got to achieve all of it together. That's, it's actually that's a higher right. standard, I think you're saying. That's right. And to that point, we, we think that the notion of a so-called blended value or blended return where I compromise a bit on my financial returns because I'm getting some social value out of something is not a winning strategy, or at least it's not the strategy that we think is going to really sort of take off. Uh, and we think that a, a better strategy is one which is just to hold the entrepreneur to a higher standard because that's what consumers are doing in their purchasing decisions anyway. And so it actually just creates better alignment. I think that uh, you'll hear in our tip realms that constraints are what uh, promotes the highest creativity. And I think Excellent. that can be true for entrepreneurs as well. Totally. Totally agree. Um, so those are some exciting deals that you've talked about there. Uh, when you look at the overall portfolio, you said 50 or so deals. Are you thinking this is going to be financially successful for the fund? Is it too early to tell? It's too early to tell. And, and as a venture capitalist, we are by nature optimistic to the point of being irrationally optimistic. And so we have really high hopes for the fund and think that it can be just as competitive as any other early stage fund you'll find in business. Uh, and the early signs are quite promising, but we're still just in the first inning of this business. And another thing I've learned about venture is that it takes a very long time to have a really good sense for whether or not you're good at it. And so I've learned to wait and to follow signals, but not to follow them too much and instead try and stay disciplined about my first principles and try and stay committed to the entrepreneurs who I've agreed to serve. Are you raising more funds at this point? Uh, we're not actively raising yet, but we intend to do so sometime in the next year. And it's having made the number of investments that we've made, uh, we have at least enough of a track record that we can take it to market and see how the market responds. Uh, I'll be very curious to see whether our strategy continues to be validated the way that uh, it has been in the past. Now, you have created some some second fund. How, how long ago was that, the Alignment Holdings? Yeah, Alignment Holdings is a little less than a year old, and it's still in the very, very early stages. And Alignment Holdings, from a, I guess, a insight point of view, was, was really a, a function of us realizing that some of our companies, and in general in this market, uh, have now feel confident that there's a really aligned set of investors in the early stage. There are angel investors who really get being financially sophisticated and leading with impact. There are seed investors and early institutional investors who get it. But in the later stages, that tends to sort of quickly fall apart. And uh, we were reacting to that, not only in the sense of entrepreneurs finding that they were lacking really aligned partners just for who to choose, but also in terms of how to structure 
the actual transactions at the later stage. And so one of the interesting outcomes of being over-indexed, so to speak, in the mission category is a lot of these founders don't want to just flip these companies. In fact, that's, that's very far from their motivation for doing it. It's usually because they're motivated by some higher order bit than short-term financial gains. And so this notion of a merger or an acquisition or even an IPO in some cases is just a lot less appealing to these founders. And so they've been trying to figure out ways that they can make their investors whole, ways that they can make their employees whole without having to cash out and quit. And so Alignment Holdings is actually a direct reaction to that. And it's a very experimental sort of later stage uh, approach to financing where we're focusing on companies who have reached significant revenues and are trying to figure out a way to get their next financing to better align with what their ideal outcome would be from a liquidity standpoint. I do think this is a central question and, in fact, uh, is not just a late-stage issue, as you're talking about, but it impacts entrepreneurs' decisions very early on, even in the form of the company that they're choosing and how they think about um, structuring the company from the very earliest stages. I've, I've seen more and more early-stage entrepreneurs aware of that long-term question, how am I going to get money back to investors? Should I even take investment? Because it's going to set this expectation that I'm going to deliver on this sale or or this IPO or whatnot down the line. And I think there is an increasing awareness about that at the very earliest stages, even though it may be five, 10 more years down the line. That's absolutely right. And But what we don't want to do is to dissuade people from into the ring, is to dissuade really great, really hungry, creative people from taking a shot, and even to dissuade them from taking some early equity. We think that the early equity serves a really useful purpose, which is that it doesn't have that many restrictions. It can come in without there being a ton of data already to back it. And it's people who can really help substantively level up a business. And so we really want to make sure that we're still supporting that, not only with collaborative fund, but even in the sort of ecosystem story that we tell, because we we think that that has been very helpful to a lot of companies that have gotten to good scale. Don't just listen, get engaged. Join our giving circle to support startup tech nonprofits. And who knows, the startup that you fund may be on Startups for Good one day. You talked about this vision of, of Mission Alliance, but I think Collaborative Fund is also well known for investing in shared economy, collaborative uh, business models as well. Yes. Um, and uh, I, I'd love to get your perspective. Have you done too much of that? Are you going to do more of that? I mean, you've emphasized more of the mission in, in this conversation. I'm curious how you think about that. Sure. Well, with I guess I'll go in the opposite direction. Will we do more of it? I strongly believe we will. I, I suspect we will. And I'm really, really interested personally in the maturity of the blockchain ecosystem, uh, which is one of these fascinating points. Uh, Bitcoin and the blockchain more generally is one of these funny things where you have the uh, conservatives who want to avoid uh, government regulation to the libertarians who are sort of hyper security focused to the to the liberals who are all about inclusive platforms all converging on this is our answer and that's a sign that you've got something really special but with respect to the blockchain particularly as it relates to sharing economy i think that once you start to 
make networks more fundamentally decentralized and actually provide an infrastructure by which to do that responsibly, you're going to see a boon of next-gen networks that are owned by their stakeholders with a lot more agency than is the case today. And I'm very excited to see how we can sort of put capital behind those types of efforts. And then with respect to the sharing economy more broadly, uh, our one of our going taglines internally, and I think externally too, is that we back the shared future. And obviously, we're called the Collaborative Fund and, and have backed TaskRabbit and Lyft and, and uh, GetAround and, and companies like that. Uh, but our belief is that the sharing economy is very broad, is very deep, and isn't just uh, unused assets and latent inventory in a peer-to-peer marketplace, narrowly speaking. And we think the sharing economy is more a function of shared values as well, and a matter of us communicating our shared values and transparency on platforms and accountability from our service providers and more of an ecosystem than just sharing economy. And so I'd say that the sharing economy is a not fully enclosed subset of our thesis. And so there are aspects of the sharing economy where I don't think sort of at least the sharing economy as other people describe it, where I don't think it's a fit for what we do, but a lot of it is. That makes sense. Now, I want to challenge you a little bit on Please. companies that are part of portfolio that I wouldn't consider, you know, as a, a consumer or a user. You know, I might respect their products, but I wouldn't necessarily consider them mission driven from the brand as I understand it. Please. And is that because they've changed, evolved, or I don't understand the, the companies? I mean, things that come to mind, I think they were on your website, Reddit, Gumroad, AngelList, there may be others. That's I, I I'm super glad you, you you said that and the my my best answer to that is that impact is in some ways I think of it like the FCC thinks of porn you know it when you see it uh, but that actually doesn't mean that we're all seeing the same thing at the same time in the same way and there is a fair amount of variability there and uh, how does Reddit help people. Uh, and how does Reddit sort of create the conditions for a safe space to have conversation, to politically organize, to build community, to find access to individuals who are dealing with paranoia, who are dealing with closeted homosexuality, and so on and so forth. Reddit is the perfect place for that. Is that social impact? To some beholders, no. And to some beholders, absolutely, yeah. With the notion of AngelList, as, a, as another example you mentioned, there's this question as to whether or not venture capital is the gatekeepers of innovation or the gatekeepers of, of uh, the tech industry because it's a small group of people who sit in a back boardroom and very non-transparently make financial decisions with respect to companies. And this notion of inviting that to the crowd, making it open, making it infinitely accessible to anybody who has the sort of right legal uh, uh, backing for it seems to me like it could conceivably be thought of as helpful, useful, but not social impact or extraordinarily social impact. And right. so, and I, I understand it in those framings. I guess uh, I haven't perceived the brands, even users of these products uh, as being directed in that way. So I wonder if there is an opportunity for them to communicate it differently, to position differently, or maybe they're trying to communicate that and I just have been oblivious. Who knows? Well, it, well and let me, let me, let me, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm with you in this, in that it's, so sometimes we look at a company and we think to ourselves, as a socially oriented venture firm, this company is like Anakin Skywalker, and we want to be the Jedi side. Uh, and in other cases, we think this company is actually thoroughly baked, and we're just glad to be mentioned alongside them because they manifest their mission so clearly and powerfully. And in other cases, we see something that others don't see, you know, and and so it's it's a mixed bag and is an imperfect science, undoubtedly. And, and to this point, I guess... 
as I've thought about it in the industry, how a lot of impact investors in the past have avoided the lexical bounds question of it is just to choose industries to be dogmatic about staying within those industries and that be that. Yes, yeah, so they focused more on the what so than the just how. Right? Just education or just healthcare or just education and financial services or something like that. There's a company we invested in called Buffer and they do social media management. They help you tweet better, quite literally. They're also the most transparent company that has venture backing, I think, in the entire Silicon Valley. Their equities are their equity is public, their salaries are public, their KPIs are available to anyone on the internet. And every time they send out an investor update, they invite anyone who wants to see to join along. And their idea in doing this is they think that a culture of deep transparency is a fundamentally resilient culture. And I think that in and of itself is such an interesting social impact story that the content of what they're doing as a company uh, is a compliment to that and maybe a neutral compliment, maybe a positive compliment, but is not necessarily the reason why we think of that as an impact first company. So it also depends on the type of company as well and, and where we think there's special impact magic happening. That makes a lot of sense. So the, I'm glad you brought up Buffer because that's one I think you've blogged about before yourself. Yes. And they've they've shared in this transparent way uh, some about the deal that they came to with you uh, as a VC. And I think it goes back to something we talked about earlier in the conversation about structuring things in the right way, thinking about the incentives and the long term and how it impacts the company and the entrepreneur's decisions. So do you mind talking a little bit more about that? Oh, gladly. So Buffer is a like social media management platform and uh, they have... As, as you'll see, should you choose to, to go investigate yourself, but they've got north of $5 million in revenue or a very healthy business and uh, have had many uh, potential acquisition offers over the last couple of years. And in each one of those acquisition offers, they sort of looked at each other as a team and decided that they didn't want to exit to the point, in fact, where they realized that they might not ever want to exit. And if that was the case, then how would they square that against the desire to bring on some growth capital to provide interstitial liquidity to different employees at the company, and also to fit into the Silicon Valley archetypes of today. And so we spent some time with them just thinking about how to make sense of that and, and how to best orient them and us in a way that was aligned. And what we ended up doing was a very, very unusual structure, which a lot of people have done some eyebrow scratching over. Uh, and the way we framed it was we would put in a cumulative dividend in kind. And so our stake would accrue, actually would grow uh, year over year until a certain date, which was the redemption date. And on the redemption date, we then had the right to uh, ask for a payout ourselves. So what that manifests in is we have the chance four or five years from now to exit as a fund without the company itself having to exit. And the reason why we structured it like that was they want growth capital right now. And our exit, the way that we structured it, wouldn't have been and wouldn't be an exit of sort of such a big order of magnitude from a cash standpoint that the company would be hurt by it conceivably if they continue on their growth trajectory. So it would actually just align incentives for them to get to a great cash position so that they can pay us out and then keep rolling. And what we've also sort of structured in there just so that we can make sure incentives are truly aligned not only between us and them, but between us, them, and our investors is a, an equity warrant as well, where we have the opportunity to stay in the business with a preference should that company decide decide that they change their mind and do want to exit? Should they decide they want to IPO? Should they decide that they'd rather sell to Google or you name it for some big sum? We can then still sort of uh, enjoy the proceeds of that as well. And so what we did in doing that was we gave the company a lot of optionality 
And we didn't take a board seat. Uh, we have a board observer seat. And so we have sort of full information rights, but for a transparent company, that doesn't Yeah, it much. sounds like everyone on the internet has a... <laughs> so, exactly. So does everybody else. Uh, you know, and, and we and we landed on a, on a valuation that was that was uh, aggressive, but fair, you know, and it was uh, on a on a revenue multiple that was that was coherent with how SaaS businesses are trading on the public markets, how different SaaS valuations manifest in the private markets. And so we sort of were really thoughtful about how do we make sure we're aligned here around your interests and our interests? Because if that happens, then good things will happen. And so we think of alignment and transparency and these types of shared accountability as really critical features to building the right type of sort of ecosystem-driven society. And we're hoping that we can be a piece of that too. Well, I think it's a really interesting deal. And the issues that you're grappling with, I think, are important ones. I, I don't think I fully get yet how the structure that you came to is much different than a loan. I mean, it's a loan that you wouldn't be able to get from a bank, but it's essentially you have a you have this date when they have to pay. To be, honest, to be honest, it's not that different. It's not that different. And, you know, and the funny thing with respect to loans and, and debt is people think of the line between equity and debt as... As a, as a fixed black line and one is black and one is white. Some people like one, some people like the other and that there's no difference between them. But if you think about mezzanine debt, if you think about, uh, the types of equity financings that happen in down markets where there's a lot more teeth, uh, these are all very similar, uh, versions of each other where the control provisions are just sort of oriented around the different needs for the investor to make sure that they get liquidity. And so we are trying our hardest to just be proactive about being experimental there and not sort of worry about the lexical bounds of it, but just find the perfect structure to match a company where they are. Makes sense. I hope Buffer doesn't mind us talking about them, but they publish so much information that, it, that you can really get into the details and people can understand it. So I think it's an interesting topic. Absolutely. I, I would like to uh, shift gears a little bit in terms of getting your advice uh, for uh, other folks. So entrepreneurs who are thinking about raising VC and they've got a social venture, uh, whether they're approaching you or someone else, general thoughts. Sure. So my first thought is for certain class of company, if you can make your accounts receivable greater than your accounts payable in your first month, in your first quarter, and in your first year, uh, and thereby write your own destiny and not have to either take a loan or take equity in the form of preferred from somebody else. So you're saying their accounts receivable, meaning what your Just, customers owe you, you've gone and sold stuff is more than what you owe your vendors, your accounts pay. Exactly. If you can just make money uh, and if you can just sell something that people want and sell it at a margin that exceeds your cost, then my first piece of advice is to just do that because you have so much more optionality, you have so much more control, you have so much more freedom. And what often happens and Part of why the venture industry exists in the first place is that a lot of companies actually don't make a ton of money or don't or can't be run profitably, I should say, in their first six months, 18 months, and in some cases, even three or four years. And so then they then need uh, equity financings to fund their operations and in some cases, their growth uh, along the way. But if you don't have to do that, then it's worth just giving yourself a very serious evaluation as to whether or not you can just build a business that just makes money. Uh, so that's point one. And the reason, and another sort of aspect to that, to go back to the buffer consideration, is most investors, when they invest in a company, they expect to get 
three to five X of their money out in a certain number of years. And so if you don't have a big liquidity event that you're charging towards, I don't actually think it's a bad thing to not take venture capital. And I think it's actually a good thing to really strongly consider that as the first point of business. But assuming that you will, or assuming that you want to, assuming that you're oriented around it, uh, there's a, a common uh, debate in, in the venture community as to whether or not the best companies are really great because of the founder or really great because of the market. And uh, there's a sort of minority of people who think it's because of the product itself. But the market being, well, you know, what is the universe of people you're selling to and how badly do they want the solution that you're offering? The founder is obvious. And so my personal view on that is that those are actually two sides of a similar coin. And so if you are a really, really extraordinary founder, you'll find a problem, you'll find an itch that really needs to be scratched. <laughs> you know, you'll find a market which has really, 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 really needs a better solution. Uh, and if you're a mediocre founder and you don't find that great market, it's going to be really hard. And if you're a great founder and don't find that great market, it's even going to be hard. And so I would think about does this itch really need to be scratched? And are there enough people out there who have this itch? And uh, and really sort of hold yourself to the fire about that. Is it millions of people? Is it hundreds of millions of people? Is it representing millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars? And if you're not in those orders of magnitude, then it also might be worth considering either doing a different business or going on a different trajectory because it's only that type of scale that sort of makes sense for the venture model. Because again, we're looking for those home runs in, you know, a sea of expected failures. Well, that's great advice. You know, first consider to even want to raise money. And then if you're going to make sure you're of the right scale and you have a market um, that is worthy of raising that money. And I think those are, those are great points. I really want to thank you for coming on the podcast today. It's been a really interesting conversation. I'm sure our listeners will get a lot out of it. So thank you very much. Miles, thank you. This has been my absolute pleasure. And uh, I look forward to hearing it on the internet. Wonderful. Okay. Bye-bye. Take care. If you liked what you heard today on the podcast, be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast player. And please give us a rating and review. The reviews help others find us. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and you can follow me on LinkedIn. Be sure to visit our website, startupsforgood.com. That's startupsforgood, all run together, no spaces.com. If you were inspired today and want to join our online community or our giving circle, please do so on our website. 